Listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Ben Steiner, Peter Galindo, and Alexander Gonge Ruzic. Welcome back inside the Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 110 of NFP. Ben Steiner alongside Alex Gonge Ruzic and Peter Galindo. Alex in Vancouver, but actually on a TV monitor that he got for $10 at Value Village that's currently on the table. Peter and I alongside each other here in Toronto. But Certainly a busy week of Canadian soccer, the women's national team getting back on the field. We'll get into all of that, but please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on all social medias because that is very appreciated from our point of view. But as we get into the women's national team specifically to start off with, uh, they're at the She Believes Cup. They open their She Believes Cup, but I guess we'll start off with uh, just how you guys doing. Well, first of all, um, Alex, is it true that you actually lugged that monitor all the way from the Valley Village back to the apartment? Because Ben is saying that this is what happened. That is one thing that is true because uh, the dollar signs uh, that Ben threw around weren't true. I did pay a little more than that. Um, <laughs> anyways, I, I appreciate it. A bit of a heads up next time uh, my monitor is getting poached up from me. But yes, I did pay 35 and lugged it for about an hour on TTC on a Sunday to get at home so it was quite the trek but wasn't too too heavy was it worth it definitely worth it good works like a charm clearly as we're now seeing after ben went into your room jacked it so that we could see you properly but you can only see me currently (laughs) on the podcast recording making this way more why don't we just do this remotely guys i don't know it's so much easier (laughs) anyway anyway we'll get into the she believes cup enough of us uh joking about how complicated we make things for ourselves uh, but Canada, of course, opened their She Believes Cup with a 2-0 loss against the U.S., but then a 2-0 win over a strong Brazilian team who it seems like they play pretty well all the time, almost like a league against the Brazilians. Uh, they close out their tournament against Japan on Wednesday afternoon. But when you take a look at this tournament so far, other than the labor issues off the field, how has this team looked on the field? It's hard to, I think, properly judge it because that first game, you could just see their heads were very much elsewhere other than soccer and they played like it i mean some of the mistakes they committed you just would not chalk it down to a team of canada's quality right now have they struggled to to beat the us in in some games yes but to that degree where they're just making sloppy passes out of the back where they're just not in position in certain areas no um on the bright side they did produce a better performance against brazil um are there still some question marks going into that japan game and then looking ahead to possible april games and then into the summer yes but at the very least they did show that that was probably just a freak result against the u.s and that that brazil game is is maybe slightly more who they are yeah i mean in terms of the u.s performance i think what was the most stark was not just i mean obviously the players weren't 100% there the first 30 minutes you could feel it but then you add in that a lot of the issues that they showed in the game were there in the final against the U.S. a a year ago at the CONCACAF championships finals I think it was just that game compounded because in that game Canada did eat a lot of pressure for most of the game but Kaylin Sheridan was otherworldly Canada was at least punching back and then of course you know Alicia Chapman gives up the penalty Alex Morgan dispatched it that was all that game was 1-0 whereas this game 
a lot of those same early mistakes were there, but because they weren't as sharp defensively, they weren't as sharp in possession. You know, a lot of those mistakes just ended up in the back of their net. So I think it was one where it was obviously one where you chalk up the the overall performance to one where, okay, the players' heads weren't completely there and that's understandable. But I also do think there were some bigger issues that were exposed in that U.S. game that were also exposed last time around that Canada is going to have to look at, namely how teams that continue to press them high cause them a lot of problems. And that's te- things we, we're going to, I think we're going to see a lot more of if this continues because, you know, te- if you're a team scouting Canada right now, you know, you see how presses are destabilizing them. Uh, you know, that, that's something that you should probably hone in on. I mean, you can look at that Canadian backline and just how they acted under the pressure from Mallory Swanson, uh, especially in that, that U.S. game. And I mean, Swanson has continued it throughout the She Believes Cup in their second match day as well. But the Canadian backline just didn't look completely sort of zoned in. And that might have shaken up Sheridan a little bit and very evident on the, on the second goal as well. Yeah. But I, I do think that when you look at the result, 2 nothing against the U.S., it's not terrible. It's the best team in the world, according to the FIFA rankings, whatever you want to put into those. But it's also a game where the, the mindset's not completely focused on the field. There was a lot of focus on that Canadian team and not a lot of focus necessarily on the footballing aspect of that game. And that's just it. I mean, everything Alex did bring up is true in that when they face faster, more technically gifted teams that can, I think, at times capitalize the, depending on personnel, of course, maybe slower Canadian defense, then they are obviously punished. And then there's only so much Kalen Sheridan can do, as we saw, right? Um, they, they did recover in the second half, to their credit. Bev Priestman made necessary changes to the team to be able to kind of briefly show some flashes in the second half. Simi Wujo comes in, looks very good. She starts the second game, which I'm sure we're going to get into, and, and looks good again. The, the first 30 minutes, that game was over, and you could just tell from the very start that they were they really could not, and, and I, I hate to always say this about professional athletes, but I don't know if they were really that fussed to be there in that moment. I mean, they didn't want to play until they were forced to to obviously play the tournament. So, I mean, I think it'd be pretty fair to say that mentally they just, eh, they, I don't want to say they mailed it in, but they definitely weren't as sharp as they could have been, even though those same issues were were there. And from wsoccer.ca, at wsoccer.ca, what do you think of the performance against Brazil? Of course, a much improved performance by Canada with Fiennes and Gilles both finding the back of the net. Yeah, I mean, it was one where, you know, it was a lot better performance. I think it's something that we expected from Canada. I think it was, you know, it was one where they were just much more sharp, it felt like, in, in everything that they did. And I think that was the big difference that we, you know, saw against the U.S. Because, again, the U.S. game was one where you look at the numbers. I mean, the possession was somehow relatively even, but, you know, Canada just didn't look completely in it whereas in this brazil game you know canada just looked so much sharper uh especially on the two key areas where let's be real if they're going to do well at the world cup this is going to have to be their bread and butter that's set pieces and that's Mm -hmm. just defending and i think we saw that return of better defending in the end they did allow 1.46 xg in the end which isn't terrible a bit on the high end and did rely a bit on, you know, some Kalen Sheridan brilliance, but we can get to more what that means in a minute. That's just when you have a world-class goalkeeper, you can get away with mistakes. Mm -hmm. And, but for the most part, they limited a lot of good chances from Brazil. And then they were just efficient on set pieces. I mean, the fact they got both goals off of one off a corner directly, just a 
beautiful ball from you know Jesse Fleming right on Vanessa Gill's head, and then another one uh, from Jesse Fleming off free kick that just bounced around in the box and caused some chaos. I think it was good to see. I, I still think there was some areas of the game against Brazil where you know they still could have been a bit frustrated. Again, the high press did cause some some issues. The midfield did not look settled at all for p- large periods of the game. Even the front three that, that that started didn't exactly look great. But some of the front three options off the bench looked great. So there's are there are still some worries. But I think unlike the U.S. game, they're just a lot sharper and you know they were more ruthless. And okay, let's just execute our set pieces. Let's defend well. And I think that's always going to be a recipe for success in tournament soccer. So if they can keep that part of their game up and sharpen up playing out the back, sharpen up in possession, get more going from open play, then that's something that you can be very encouraged about going forward. It looked more fluid, for sure, compared to the U.S. game. And I think that's partially due to the mental focus, again, but also I think that just the personnel changes, too. Um, Because you had, basically, in that U.S. game, it was Leon, Becky, Fleming, and Sinclair. They all seemed to be playing in the same areas and quite narrow against the U.S., whereas I think it was a little more spread out against Brazil. Um, Because Becky and Fleming had that freedom to roam at times. Um, Ashley Lawrence was occasionally moving inside as a winger, which we're going to get into very shortly. Um, Leon was at times the outlet up front, and it it worked pretty well in, in a lot of situations. And then again... Simi Wujo's inclusion seemed to add a bit of a different layer to the to the team on the ball as well. So I, I think overall, you have to say there was improvement. Are there still areas of concern, which Alex pointed out? Absolutely. But that's what this tournament, as well as potentially future games, are for, working out the kinks. The one negative I'd say is that, and Alex did mention it there, is that the fact that the substitutes seem to be making the impact, but the starters are not, at least in attack, is a little bit concerning, you would have to say, going forward. I, I think part of the discussion has to be how does this team adjust to not who's the next Christine Sinclair, but how do we play without Christine Sinclair delivering at that level? And that's been a question for several years now, and that's not something that the team has been able to answer. So they continually try to move chess pieces around the board to do something with the starting lineup, but at the end of the day, you're not seeing those results from those starters. And that's why the, the substitutes have made such an impact. You see a Simeo Wujo, she's made an incredible impact at the youth levels for Canada when you see her with her own age group. And then you put her up to the senior level. And sure, it's it's less so because uh, she's playing against full-grown women. But there's still a competitive sort of edge that's there. Uh, and a way that she can pick apart the game that you're not necessarily seeing from the sort of the 15 players that regularly start for Canada and you are seeing sort of from sort of players 16 through 25 that kind of uh, are on the fringes of the squad. Well, look, I think heading into the world cup this summer, it's important that Canada, I think realizes and we're seeing it like in, in shifts, but I think something, a big change is going to be just full on embracing it is this is Jesse Fleming, Julia Grosso, Kadisha Buchanan, Vanessa Gilles, Ashley Lawrence and Janine Becky's team. I think any form of success that you have has those five slash, I think it was five players uh, 
six. I think it was six players. I named those six players need to be involved, need to be on the field in some form. Of course, we can argue where Ashley Lawrence's best position, where Janine Becky's best position, where Jesse Fleming best position. That's a whole different discussion to have. But I think any formation that doesn't include those six, you know, and of course, actually, you just make it seven because Kaylin shared that this raid has written her name in in pen as well. So those seven, I think you have to build around them just because they've been your core. They're your best players. Jesse Fleming, when she's on, Canada's on. Like, look, you know, look at this game in the first game. She was a bit off. It wasn't Jesse Fleming's best game in a Canada shirt against the U.S. And you felt that against Brazil. She was at her best. And, you know, it shows that Canada didn't necessarily play at their best against Brazil. But when your best players are playing their best, they can take you places. And, you know, I think Canada has to find a way to maximize those players. Because I think at this point, it's important to realize players like Christine Sinclair, for example, she's the big, you know, the big obvious one, the, the the face of the program. But to an extent, you look at players like Sophie Schmidt, Desiree Scott, et cetera. They're supporters, I'd say, like in the sense that, you, you know, they're players that you put in supporting role. Like if Christine Sinclair, you're playing an opponent where you can start Christine Sinclair. Great. But it shouldn't be at the cost of limiting Fleming and Grosso, you know, their role. It should be you should be focusing on maximizing those players. So if if Sinclair's best role is coming off the bench, because, again, she looked good off the bench against Brazil. And we've seen her play well off the bench. I think namely Nigeria in April, where she came off the bench, scored a goal, helped Canada snatch a 2-2 result in a game they were trailing in then that's the sort of role you're going to have to look at uh, for Christine Sinclair and, you know, players of that, like Alicia Chapman's another one you could throw into that group just because, you know, they, they're players that can still produce. I think we've seen it. Like there's games where Chapman against the U S she didn't look at her best and against Brazil, she looked a lot better, but I think Canada needs to find a way to prioritize their, their best six, seven, eight players, and then fill in the pieces around. Whereas right now it still feels like, you know, Bev Priestman isn't always prioritizing that it's a bit of a mix of, you know, some of her best players are resting or not being put in their best positions. And sometimes that doesn't, you know, that'll, that you see that in the starting 11 and they bring those players on and then they look better and you kind of point like, look, see, that's what happens. And getting into some of those positional adjustments, another question from wsoccer.ca. What did you make of Lawrence at the left wing experiment and what's our best front three at this point? Well, (laughs) in terms of Lawrence on the left wing, it was okay. I mean, she's always had the attacking traits that would make you think, oh, she could maybe cut it as a winger. And to be fair, maybe the fact that she was so free roaming didn't help her in this regard, but she was not nearly as effective in the final third as she normally can be, kind of overlapping from fullback, going up and down. Defensively, she was fine, as you would expect, but it's one game, it's very tough to judge, but based on what we saw... I don't know if that's the best role, especially when you do have a lot of attacking depth on the wings as well. Yeah, I think actually Lawrence's best skill set is more like as a ball progressor. So I just don't think the role suited her more because she was asked to more just be someone who gets the ball in the final third already, where she went, as we see, she's so good at getting the ball to the final third and making things happen. So maybe if in a front three, if she was tweaked to a position where she's starting a little deeper, Almost, but that's the role Janine Becky almost plays. So I just think it was one of those where the two players wanted to play a similar role. And I don't know, I didn't, it didn't suit her. I think for Canada, if we keep talking about their, you know, issues playing out the back, I think Ashley Lawrence is going to be a big part of that solution just because she can dribble, she can pass her way out of trouble. And I think Canada needs as much of that as possible at the back against top teams. So I think it's one less where I, you know, I disagree that with the, you know, the section I'd say of people that say Ashley Lawrence needs to be moved. I think it's one where maybe when Jade Riviere is 
back and you know you, you you've got the options you try it but i don't think it's one where it's like must it's do or die i think there's enough options in the middle of the park you can again namely go over the midfield you know quain fleming grosso that's no problem there's enough options up front so i think if one if you're up front and in the middle it's settled ashley lawrence has shown time and time again she can progress the ball from deep and sometimes for canada as we've seen it doesn't matter if you have the greatest front three in the world on the pitch if they don't get the ball, it doesn't matter who you play up front. And I mean, to answer the, the second question from wsoccer.ca, who do I think start should be starting up front? I think there's a reality that two of Canada's best options aren't healthy right now, and that's Deanne Rose and Nichelle Prince. And I think that's mm-hmm. also important to note because I think Deanne Rose starts for sure, Nichelle Prince definitely in that discussion. But personally, if I'm looking at front three, based on what we've seen, it's uh, – I think right now, if you're talking about this camp, Lacasse has to get a start. I don't know, know what more she can do at Benfica. And every time she sees the field for Canada, she makes something happen. So I'd say Chloe Lacasse has to be in there if we're talking right now. I think Janine Becky has to be in there just because you lose something in terms of chance creation, as we saw in the November window when she's not on the field. And then it just comes down to whatever whoever's in more form between Evelyn Vienne and Jordan Hoytema. It's very hard to split them just because... Vian will give you the goal scoring, whereas Hoytema gives you the holdup. I think right now, based on what Canada needs, you go for Vian for the goal scoring. But uh, also, I do think Hoytema has shown that in some games, that value that she does bring in terms of holdup play uh, does pay off. So I'd say that's probably your best front three if you're talking this camp based on form right now. But Rose changes that for sure when she's back, as does Prince. 100% she does. I, I will point out, though, that if you're looking at the world cup stage or you're looking at games against marquee teams especially considering the threat canada does pose on the counter that's why you probably lean vn in those games because you know she's gonna get the goals if you put her in the promising positions get her the service and get the ball into the box because she'll more often than not convert the chances that's not to say none of the players you know out of whether it's hoitema whether it's you know nichelle prince when she comes back Deanne rose when she comes back that they don't fit in, or Christine Sinclair can come off the bench and, and be an impact substitute in that way. Like they all fill different roles depending on the opposition. And that's why it's so beneficial to have this depth. But I, I would agree, based on Lacasse's form and also how impactful she's looked for Canada on the wing, too. She has to start. Becky is a surefire starter regardless. And then for right now, VN, especially when you need goals, I think you lean VN up front. And from Dan Clark at Dan Clark 999, should Vanessa Gilles be a penciled in starter? I would say for right now, yes, because, and Alex, I think you mentioned the stats. This would have been a couple windows ago. But when you looked at the defensive record and the expected goals when Gilles and Buchanan started together, it was ridiculously good. And considering that Gilles is still gaining form at Lyon, she did have the injury, she's back, she's starting, she's getting 90 minutes, helping towards clean sheets and whatnot. Is she a little shoddy playing out of the back? Sure, but I think she's getting more improvement as the weeks go by at Lyon. And so I would say that for now, yeah, she would be a penciled-in starter just because of the chemistry she has with Buchanan and certainly prior to the She Believes Cup, the strong defensive record they had together. Yeah, I think it's just one where the partnership of Gilles and Buchanan just looks so subtle because I think they complement each other very nicely. Like they've got a good mix of speed, which is mm-hmm. is key. You, you know, they don't often get beat 
you know, in the foot race. Like I think that was one moment actually in the Brazil game. There was a, someone got a breakaway and it was so jarring because Buchanan got caught and that, you never see that. And just, again, that's another thing that shows how good they are, that they typically never give up breakaways of that. Like they're, you know, they're both very good in the air, but Gilles particularly so. And then Buchanan's so good at playing out the back. They've just found a way to, to kind of, mask each other's weaknesses and push elevate each other's strengths in a partnership that you don't often get for center back so i think it's one where you go for those two as much as possible it is nice though if you're best priest because like the fact that shalina zadorsky isn't starting like that's a f- great thing from a coach's perspective and it's unfortunate because yeah like zadorsky is the consistently the captain on one of the top teams in england always does great job for 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 tottenham for Canada as well, she's great in the air. She's probably the best passer of the on the uh, of the ball of the three. But it's just one where you look at just the the, the skills and the defensive attributes that Buchanan and Gio have. It, it just makes such a difference. Whereas Zadorsky, the one maybe area that you know she doesn't have is just that that turn of speed that Buchanan and Gio have, uh, and that's just where it hurts her because it's unfortunate for her and it's unfortunate for Jade Rose, who I mean has had to literally change positions to to get a chance in the world cup squad just because Canada is so deep at center back but yeah I think we've seen enough over the last two years to any big game is Gilles and Buchanan unless you got knocks unless you got fitness but hey the fact that you can look at Zadorsky as your third option you're always you're, you're laughing as a coach that's the reality and there could also be a few more world cup prep games for Canada that is if they work out the labor situation came out today from Bev Priestman that there is a possibility of Canada playing France in April should everything work out in the labor negotiations, they would possibly also play Colombia as well. Two formidable opponents that would certainly be positive World Cup prep should they get to that point. Of course, a long way to go in those negotiations and we'll get to that. But when they approach the World Cup, if that's the next time that they're approaching a game, when you're figuring out a starting midfield, how do you choose midfielders ahead of the World Cup? I think it depends on the opponents. Um, I mean, Quinn came in against the U.S. and shored things up with Rosso and Fleming there. Um, they, they went very attack-minded against the U.S. I was actually a little surprised by that, given how they've approached past games. Maybe Priestman thought, hey, listen, we've gone maybe a little more conservative um, in terms of how we set up. Might as well try to get some sort of influence on the ball, maybe try to catch them um, You know, when they press us high, if we can somehow break the line of engagement. All of a sudden, we got some game breakers going forward. Maybe that was the thinking. But when Quinn came in, they really shored things down there. Um, In games where you expect to have more possession, and again, maybe at the World Cup, they might be few and far between given how tough their group is, but why not start a Wujo at this point? Like, she's clearly good enough for this level. Um, She was flirting with starting, possibly entering 2023. And I think she's kind of reminded us that she's kind of pushing for a starting spot. Now, Desiree Scott's hurt, that comes into it. Um, I I do think that the only real guarantees are, you know Grosso's going to start, you know Fleming is going to be in there for the most part. And it really just depends who you want next to Grosso in the double pivot behind Fleming kind of occasionally going forward. So, um, But you need to find a balanced trio against the top sides, otherwise it's far too open as we saw there against the U.S., yeah, Bev Priestman has a heck of a decision to make because especially if it's 23-player squads, which, I mean, again, it seems like they FIFA, FIFA wants to stick with it for women's and men's tournaments going forward. It's just so unfortunate that they're, you know, they can't, that they're not sticking with it. If they do, like, what, Priestman can bring six midfielders? <laughs> like, if, if that, like, you know, and, like, all of a sudden you look at the numbers, like, 
Grosso Fleming. Those are your ones you write in pen. I mean, Sinclair, you assume that she's been listed as a midfielder. All of a sudden, you're looking at the likes of, of Quinn, who I think is there. That's four. All of a sudden, you have a Wujo, Schmidt, and Scott. You, you talk about players like Victoria Pickett, who we're not even talking about. She can't even crack the squad, you know, but maybe she has a strong start to her season in NWSL. All of a sudden, the options are thin. I think looking right now, like, it's going to be harder and harder to leave Simi Wujo home. It's one where it's just like, if she continues to look like this, you know, you, you can't deny youth. If you're ready, you're ready. And it's one where she's shown enough. She's got the physical profile. She gives you a bit of size in the midfield that Canada doesn't maybe have otherwise in the midfield. So other midfielders are a little more, you know, on the smaller side. You know, she's very good on the ball. And I think you could, based on just the way the European teams play. And I think, again, the European teams are going to dominate this tournament based on what we saw, you know, last time out. Those European teams are just so good on the ball and you can't afford to, you know, they press high as well. So you can't afford to be lazy for the lack of a better word on the ball. Not that Canada has that issue, but it just means you want the most sharpness on the ball as possible. And I think it's just going to be so hard to deny a Wujo. And I think if that comes down to the, to, to the reality, like all of a sudden you're talking about Desiree Scott or Sophie Schmidt potentially leaving out. And that's a tough decision for Priestman to make. So obviously those are two longtime veterans, you know, Schmidt, of course, announcing that she's done after the world cup, Scott also announcing the same. Uh, so I, I do not envy making that choice, but Awujo continues to, to make it, you know, di- more, you know, make it more difficult. But in terms of starting, I, I think one thing that I'm fully team of now is yeah. Canada has to play Quinn Fleming, Gross, at least try it out because the one thing about the role that Bev Priestman has Gross or Fleming in now is that it's always one of them is asked to playing and sacrifice themselves in a double pivot. Whereas if you look at them at club form, what has Grosso been good at? She has seven assists this year. She mm-hmm. just gets in the final third. They play a 4 3 3 at Juventus. She plays as an advanced eight and she just destroys opponents in the final third. Okay, you look at Jesse Fleming. She has played winger. She has played 10. She has played eight for Chelsea. But the commonality in each role, she gets up the field, she dominates. So it's like, why are you kind of sacrificing one when the easy solution? Like, okay, you have one attacking eight, you have another attacking eight. Okay, why not a triangle with a six underneath? And I just do find it a bit weird that throughout these two games, we haven't actually seen that combo for more than five minutes. Why is Grosso being asked to sacrifice her offensive attributes? Why is Fleming being asked to sacrifice you know those offensive attributes? Candace should try playing Quinn underneath because Quinn can play on the ball. Quinn can defend and do a lot of that dirty work that Grosso and Fleming can do. Don't get me wrong. I get why Priestman does it because Fleming and Grosso can do it, but doing it reduces their efficiency elsewhere on the pitch. And they're so good higher up the pitch and Canada has attackers that need the ball and Grosso and Fleming can get it to to them. So that's one where I do think Canada should look at that going forward because I think if they can get that sort of solution, it will make you know a lot of the midfield questions around who else supplements the squad a lot easier. And one player that is certainly going to be in the starting 11 come World Cup time is Kaylin Sheridan. But is she the team's most important player heading into the World Cup? Just look at the results <laughs> and how immense she's been in most of them. And yes, you have to say absolutely she is. They, in, in fact, if you even go back to when Canada got their first Olympic medal, goalkeeping has been a major, major, major staple in all their success because the way that they approached some of those games, they needed to absorb pressure and they needed big saves at crucial times. And that's exactly what they got. Whether it was, you know, Aaron McLeod, whether like whoever, Stephanie LeBay, now Kaylin Sheridan, it doesn't matter. But if you look at her numbers based on what we see on Scout, she's saving 
2.3 goals above expected during her Canada career, which you kind of look back and you think, you feel like she saved more than that just because of how often she's been called upon. But it goes to show you that even though that might not flatter her so much, it, it also states just how immense she has been when you think, oh, you know, you feel like she maybe could have saved more goals than that above expected. But yeah, 100%, she's their most important player. Well, you look at the stats from the Brazil game, 2.02, I think it was expected uh, on like target shots or basically the value of the XG that Sheridan faces, zero goals. Mm -hmm. I think it's one where it's becoming clear for Canada. Like I think all of a sudden, like, goalkeeping it seems to be you know just Sheridan is giving them a shot in so many games and it feels like especially until Canada figures out their midfield mix their attacking mix just having a goalkeeper like that makes a world of difference in terms of just giving you that confidence of knowing that okay we can push and we can you know get away with some things because Sheridan's there to bail you out of course you don't want to rely on it but the fact especially as well you'd figure that Canada once they get their starting back four which I mean assuming everyone's healthy is probably some combo of Lawrence Buchanan Gilles and Riviere mm -hmm. we keep forgetting also is in this discussion yes. <laughs> when Canada gets that uh that settled back four settled Sheridan is her job is going to get a lot easier and I think it's you know that's going to be good because she's been so good that if Sheridan's only being asked to make two three four saves a game you'd expect her to make that. And I think that's going to be a huge, huge difference for, for Canada summer. Cause yeah, I think it's one where the discussion has crept up quickly. We are talking a lot about Fleming, Grosso, Becky, but uh, based on what we've seen, just Sheridan has saved them in enough games now where you might wonder, Hey, in a world cup tournament where keepers and, and you know, those moments make a difference. Someone like Sheridan who just has just been otherworldly at her position uh, might all of a sudden become Canada's most important player right now. And when you're looking at the summer squad as well for that World Cup, which veterans have a chance of cracking that roster? I think it'll all come down to how Priestman wants to set up, particularly in the midfield, as Alex kind of pointed out. Let's say Riviere replaces Sidney Collins, right, in, in the current squad. That is a life-for-life -like change. You still have 20 as a 24 players at the She Believes Cup, I believe. So that's your backline basically set in terms of the majority of the options you want to see, right? Let's just say that for argument's sake. And then again, for argument's sake, let's say Laracy and Hellstrom are off the squad because as, as much as I do like them, as, as much potential certainly as Laracy has and as impressive as Hellstrom has been, it might be too early for them to make the World Cup squad at this stage, unless injuries strike, of course. So from there, you're down to 22 players. Desiree Scott will be back, but so will Nichelle Prince, Deanne Rose... Sophie Schmidt's going to be considered. It's just so super difficult to predict. But I would imagine that given how important the midfield is going to be, I feel like whether you're Schmidt or whether you're Scott, that might be your chance depending on fitness. But with Simi Arujo making a push, that's going to make it very interesting for sure. Yeah, it's going to be so tough. Just especially if it's 23, you're going to have to get creative. And I think yeah. one thing is we've seen Priestman, like Jade Rose shifting the fullback is no coincidence. I think it's going to be one where you have to have three center backs. And I think that's locked in. That's like the, that's the only part of the roster I can confidently say. It's going to be Kanisha Buchanan, Vanessa Gill, Shalina Zadorsky, write them in pen, forget about it. From there, it's okay. Do you go three fullbacks or four? Because the nice thing is for Priestman, Janine Becky can drop in. So, okay, look, you go Ashley Lawrence, you go Jade Riviere, and then you pick between Carl Chapman, Jay Rose, uh, 
I think probably are the main Gabrielle Carl as well. If I didn't mention her, are the yeah. four options I'd uh, I'd say there. Just because I think for Surieka might just not not be ready. Bianca Saint George also in that discussion. She did finish the year strongly, so I think there you're going one or two maybe of those. Because because then if you get away with three center backs, three full backs, that allows you that what that gets you up to nine. So then all of a sudden, if you that leaves you. Uh, 14 spots so maybe seven midfielders seven forwards yeah it's very bloated but when you have so much depth in attack and midfield the reality is you don't rotate your back line that much during tournaments anyways so you don't necessarily need as much maybe that's one so I think but then yeah you look like all of a sudden like Alicia Chapman like where does she fit in amongst all the fullbacks because you bring Chapman in that mixture leaving a Jade Rose potentially at home and she's shown well Gabrielle Carl. I think it's one where between I think the vets, if you're gonna call them uh, that, that's what Sinclair, Schmidt, Chapman, and uh, and and Scott. I think one of them genuinely might be left at home just if you keep crunching the numbers in terms of the midfield and the fullback situation. And just again, players like Jade Rose, at least in my eyes, Jade Rose has done enough to be in the, at the World Cup. Like every time she's been on the field, she's dominated. It hasn't been a case of oh, Jade Rose is ready. No, Jade Rose is like been beyond ready. So how do you leave her at home? All, all of a sudden that starts to make things a bit, you know, tough for like a Chapman say, for example. So I do think we could be set to see some tough situations with one of the veterans. I, I really do think based on what we've seen here. And from Mark Carveo at IggyFan2001, in your best estimation, item by item, what exactly will Canada soccer have to agree to for the women's team to not go on strike after the She Believes Cup? They sort of outlined it when they were discussing all the issues late last week, but, or I guess almost two weeks ago now, my God, it feels like it's (laughs) still been so recent, but anyway, they are clearly outraged by the budget cuts made to the women's national team, but the men are also dealing with the same thing. That's the reality of the situation. But I think the, the issue more so has to do with potential staffing for the world cup and just overall the resources that will be available or lack thereof, to the women. So that's one of it, I would imagine. And then the other side of it is the whole crux of the issue, which is transparency. The good news is Canada Soccer is going to have to present themselves to the Heritage Committee, actually in a couple of weeks, and maybe we'll get some sort of transparency regarding the finances. And then that might answer a lot of questions from there. Or it could open up a whole new can of worms. We'll see. It's Canadian soccer. You just never know. Usually you pick the worst case scenario that ends up being true. But those would be the two issues that would have to happen in order for the women to avoid striking again. Well, fortunately, when you look at what happens at the Heritage Committee and when these national sport organizations go up and testify and and have these difficult conversations, other stuff does come up. But nothing improves unless other things do come up. Mm-hmm. And and that's the, the first step to improving the, the sports culture in this country, both in terms of the, the issues surrounding sort of the, the labor talks in the national team, but also safe sport. And they're, they're going to talk about the Bob Berardo scandal. And that's an important part of re- recovering and growing soccer in this country as well, is making sure that it's safe for everyone to play before you can even start talking about national team funding and stuff like that. So all the issues are intertwined, but all of those hopefully will come to the surface in front of the Heritage Committee. And moving on to Canada's under-17 men's national team. Canada is through to the quarterfinals at the CONCACAF U-17s after beating Haiti 3-0 in the round of 16. And Canada will play Puerto Rico after they stun Costa Rica on penalties. The winner advances to the U-17 World Cup later this year in Peter's native Peru. And from Michael at Mick underscore Maz 
Who has been the biggest standout and the biggest letdown for Canada at the U17 tournament? Considering these youth tournaments are very weird in that you're playing every other day in the group stage, then you got four days of rest, usually in between knockout stage games, plus the fact you're playing at altitude, and these kids are still very young, you got to take everything with a grain of salt. That being said, Javon Baudoual continues to impress the hell out of me. Just a really, really intelligent box-to-box player, covers a lot of ground. The man seemed to be, well, really the kid seemed to be playing with three lungs out there at times because he had 225 minutes under his belt in five, six days and was still playing as if it was the first match of the tournament. Like, he he was that good. And despite that, his decision-making was still very sharp. He knew where to be whenever, say, Gael de Montini would get forward and he had to cover for him at fullback. He knew that he had to be in there, protect things, shut down counterattacks. Just a really good player. Also, you saw the difference that... And and yes, obviously, Haiti is maybe on paper not as good as the U.S., and and there was some rest in between here, but you saw the difference Alessandro Biello makes to that midfield and their overall rhythm when they try to play out from the back and play against a high press. Because Haiti can press pretty aggressively and quite in a quite organized manner. So for Canada to have navigated it the way that they did, sure with some turnovers, but generally speaking to navigate it the way they did after a pretty horrific showing in that way against the US shows Biello's importance. In terms of letdowns, again, grain of salt on this. I, he hasn't played a lot, and he was featuring pretty regularly in the friendlies. Ibrahim Hagazi, probably, just because I'm not sure he's been playing in his like out-and-out role. He tends to be more of a winger rather than like a direct striker, and in this system, he has to be like a number nine or a second striker, and I'm not sure that's what really suits him. Because when he got isolated in space and when he was able to kind of drift out to the left, which is where he likes to go, you really saw his qualities there. So it's more so a case of tactical fit rather than, oh, he I was expecting him to be really good and he's not really good because he is still a very talented player. He's in Rio Vallecano's Youth Academy for a reason. So, But if I had to pick one, maybe just because we haven't seen enough of him in his primary role, that would be my choice. Yeah, I'd pretty much echo those thoughts for standout and let down. The only one I'd add maybe on the standout side, Chimero Meze as well. I think yeah. he stepped right back into the Haiti lineup. And again, it makes you wonder if that does that cross go in against the US if you have a presence like him at the back, just because he's been good on the ball, he's been organizing at the back. Like he's just made a big difference for for Canada and given you that that sort of yeah, just that defensive presence and sort of you know, this sort of young center back players that Canada's going to need in the in the system long term so it's been very mm-hmm. encouraging just to see uh, what the the Toronto FC uh, product can do can he crack a Toronto FC team uh, that uh hasn't always been uh, kind to to young TFC academy players but certainly they've got some a couple of bright ones at this tournament that have been shining a reminder that the Northern Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Canucks Abroad. Find the full Canadian player pool and daily schedules for Canadians in action at canucks-abroad.ca Alfonso Davies started for Bayern in their 3-2 loss to Borussia Mönchengladbach on Saturday and assisted on both goals. He's up to seven this season in all competitions. Jonathan David converted a penalty for Lille in their thrilling 4-3 defeat to PSG on Sunday. He's now on 17 goals in all competitions this season and is one goal away from breaking his single-season high in Ligue 1. Still no Ike Ugo for Trois as he made the matchday squad but was an unused sub against Montpellier. It didn't take long for Kyle Aaron to return to his scoring ways. 
he struck for Real Valladolid in his first start in a 2-1 loss to Real Betis. Tejan Buchanan had an assist for Club Bruges in their 2-2 draw with Circle Bruges. They still have one win in nine games under Scott Parker. <laughs> Man. Stefan Estacchio went the full 90 for Porto in their 1-0 win over Rio Ave. Porto faces Inter in the first leg of the Champions League round of 16 matchup on Wednesday. And from Mark Carveo at AkiFan2001, with all of Porto's injuries, what tactics do you expect them to use in their first leg against Inter? And what do you expect Estacchio's role to be in that match? Yeah, they are dealing with quite a few injuries, particularly particularly out wide. I don't see it changing much in terms of how they're going to set up and how they might deploy the team from the start. It's pretty much going to be 4-4-2. Ishakio is going to be box-to-box, I would imagine, just because that's been his biggest threat so far this season. He'll protect the fullback when needed, but he will find his opportunities to get forward. And I think that that protection for the fullbacks is going to be especially crucial against an inter team that loves to utilize the width. Denzel Dumfries is going to be a menace out there and they're going to need all the help they can get against him. So I do think that's how he will be utilized. It probably won't be any different. Um, They probably will see the initiative a bit Porto just because again, the injuries and on paper, you might favor Inter to be able to get the job done over them. And especially without some key wide players like Otavio, Galeno, uh, Tony Martinez, one of their forward options is, is injured. There's about four or five injury doubts for this game in total. So all the more reason why I think they might maybe play a little more conservative. But Ishtakio, I think you're going to see him playing pretty much the same way he always does, but expect a pretty stellar defensive performance from him here. And he looks pretty good entering this game too. It looks like he's uh, shaken off the minor injury, which is a good sign. Yeah, we put in a heck of a shift against yeah Rio Ave on the weekend. Uh, obviously, that helped. Got a good 90 as well, which is uh, good given his recent injury woes. But yeah, I think it's one where the nice thing is for Porto, having won the group, they get the second leg at home in a couple of weeks. So if they can go out defend well maybe scratch out a draw or something of the sorts they got a couple weeks to get bodies back in the squad uh you know in, in that sort of regard um so yeah i expect 442 that's one thing that sergio conchasau has been rather consistent with uh, getting that 442 rolling every week and then just try to you know really try to keep the field in the sense that don't let inter stretch out the field like really try to to, to keep the game congested and sort in the midfield and you know get the likes of maybe tarami holding up the ball when you can in transition just because he's so good at at getting players you know running off of him even if there isn't like an otavio or a galeno who's got that pace there's still a lot of options you could throw the other pepe because of course porto has two <laughs> pepe's on the team and you know and some of the other wide dangerous wide options that they uh, can turn to even without their uh talisman in the tack that uh, otavio is Steven Vittoria went the full 90 for Chavez as they lost 3-2 to Sporting on Monday. In the EFL, Ishmael Kone got the start in Watford's 3-2 win over West Brom on Monday, going 81 minutes in the victory. Junior Hoylet played 78 minutes for Reading. Daniel Jebison started and went 64 minutes for Sheffield United in Saturday's loss to Millwall. And from Luke underscore 17, who are the top dual nationals that John Herdman should be prioritizing and when should we expect a deal from Daniel Jebison? And... Nothing against you, Luke, but it does feel like we get this question every week. We do, but I mean, understandably, fans are anxious. They they want to see what shiny new toy is, is going to enter the fold for Canada, and that's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is in Jebison's court at this point, but also partially in, in Canada soccer's and John Herdman's, because while Jebison has looked better 
you know, to start the new year, he obviously had that amazing Boxing Day performance, started the year right with the FA Cup goal and, and has slowly worked his way back into the fold at Sheffield United. He's probably not in a position where he can get a call-up, at least right now, maybe for the Gold Cup, if he was willing to leave Sheffield United and kind of get to preseason later, that could be the time. Because, I mean, right now, and this is the thing with all the dual nationals in a lot of ways, there either isn't anyone in the player pool to fill a position of need, or the ones that are potentially in the pool just maybe aren't at the level where they can contribute to Canada right now. And they do have some games that they have to win over the next few months. So that kind of adds to the complication in a lot of ways. Like there's a reason why a 40-year-old Atiba Hutchinson, apart from his leadership qualities, of course, is still going to likely figure in over the next few months. There's a reason why a 36-year-old Stephen Vittoria is still going to figure in here over the next few months. And yes, they can still provide pretty solid roles for the national team, but there's also no one else that can come in right away right now and replace those guys. And that's why when it comes to the top dual nationals that John Herbman should be prioritizing, I don't think there really is anyone. Jebison might be top of mind just because he's the one playing at one of the highest levels and he is getting fairly regular minutes in a decent league. But is he absolutely 100% needed right now? I don't think so. Well, again, it's one where you look at the dual nationals. You just also have to look at the situation. It's one where... Potential is there. And I think, but you bring in the must win games. If you're winning must win games, you want your best 11 out on the field right now. And the likes of Luca Koliosha is in your best 11 in three, four years, maybe, but he hasn't been playing in the Liga level for, for, for Espanol. So is he going to get in over some of the other winger options? Potentially not. Lucas Diaz as well. Uh, you know, until he cracks that sporting first team. You know, maybe Daniel Jebison is probably the one of the most of these players that has a chance just because in his favor is the fact that E.K. Hugbo hasn't played a game pretty much in 2023, I guess so you can say, given the whole transfer window and, uh, you know, issues and all that. So maybe if E.K. Hugbo isn't playing at all, maybe Jebison just gets a call to round out the bottom of the squad. Of course, there he'd have to commit in that case, which is a whole different discussion in his case in particular. But yeah, as you just look a lot across the board, I think it's going to be one where just based on the timeline we've seen of, of players, we're going to see, again, more movement in the squad as the year goes along. And it, it's one where we just have to see guys take their chances. Like, you know, in MLS, for example, there's a bunch of intriguing youngsters we've thrown out there. Your Moise Bombitos, your, you know, your Nathan Salibas, your, you know, your Sean Reyes, your Karifa Yells. Well, they have to go grab a starting spot for their MLS teams, play a bunch, and then they will be in the discussion in the first place. And, that's with a lot of them in Europe, a lot of potential between these sorts of names. But until they're playing regularly at that first team level, it just makes it hard because, yeah, especially these positions you're going up against. If, you know, yeah, if he's 36, you, you know, you're thinking ahead for 2026. But if Steven Vittoria is your, your best center back now and you need wins, you're going to go for your best center back. And again, I think it's good because we'll mention it time and time again. You don't want guys to be gifted spots just because they have potential. Of course, you know, ideally you want them to get that spot, but one way to really ensure their successful transition, you want them to be winning that spots. And that's part of the reason why say Ismail Kone has come so good over the last year is that he won his spot at Montreal in a tough midfield. He won his spot in a Canadian midfield, despite having to go up against some tough options. And that's what you, that's what you want from guys. You want guys coming in and just knocking down the door so much that you just can't, you know, say no. And, and until that point, there's not many dual nationals at that point. Who, who have gotten that point, even a guy like Jebison, it's more because Ugbo isn't playing at all where you'd almost consider him versus him knocking down and winning a spot. He hasn't quite got to that 
that rate yet. There is one name that I'm kind of intrigued by, and I mentioned him on the show before, Amir Batirev at Sochi. He's the Russian-Canadian dual national. In recent friendlies for Sochi, he's been playing in more of like a number eight role, whereas before he was playing as a winger or number 10 type, and he's actually looked pretty decent in that position. And considering Canada could use a bit more midfield depth, especially playing at higher levels, the Russian league is one of the better leagues in Europe, um, that could be an intriguing name to watch because he's only turning 21 in March, and if he can close out the second half of the season in Sochi's first team and get fairly regular minutes, he could be one to watch too. Alistair Johnston went the full 90 in Celtics 4-0 win over Aberdeen on Saturday, registering two key passes and a ton of activity in the final third. Sam Adekubi's loan to Galatasaray was made official. He'll join the Turkish Super League leaders until the end of the season on loan from Hatchespor. Liam Miller returned from a minor injury and made Basel's bench in a 2-2 draw with Servette. Theo Corbinu was a late substitute for Armenia Bielefeld in their 2-1 defeat to Hamburg. Milan Borjans started for Red Star in their league victory over Suskarici, picking up a clean sheet in their 3-0 win. Lucas Cavallini picked up an assist in Tijuana's 2-1 loss to America as he came off the bench in the 56th minute. Dominic Zor went the full 90 for Corona Kielce in their win over Lecce Gdansk. Marcus Gdinho had 20 minutes off the bench. <laughs> Didi Nabsi was the second-half substitute for Pau in their 1-0 loss to Lavlois. He came into the game after halftime. Don't forget to follow Canucks Abroad on Twitter at Canucks underscore Abroad and on Instagram at Canucks Abroad for frequent updates on Canadian players worldwide and join the Canucks Soccer Chat on Discord and converse with like-minded soccer fans at soccerchat.ca. Now to jump into some domestic stuff and lots of news domestically this week with the MLS season just a couple of days away. Preseason's pretty well over, but earlier today, MLS announced a restructured playoff format, and I either absolutely hate it or absolutely love it. It's nowhere in the middle. There's nine teams per conference, eighth plays ninth to get into a 16-team knockout playoff bracket. From there, it's 1v8, 2v7, 3v6, 4v5, and... That first round is best of three, which is certainly peculiar, kind of harkens back to the early days of MLS in a sense, with sort of wacky North American ideas coming into the league. But the rest of it, single knockout as we've become used to in the MLS playoffs. I think I'm leaning more towards love it because if you can get these best of three series, you can maybe get a few new rivalries. And it's something that makes more sense to a lot of casual fans in North America. The only thing is, by the way, Dan Clark did ask a question about this, and and I think he kind of succinctly put this, what the hell is going on with that new MLS playoff format? That was exactly my thought when I came up with this. This, to me, is a symptom of the Apple deal in that they want more games, they want more money, they want more bang for their buck, and MLS is willing to give it to them because they're getting a lot of money from Apple to be able to sell the TV rights. So they're all for this. In terms of nine teams making the playoffs, I mean, it's ridiculous because you're rewarding mediocrity, but I'm sure owners would love it because that means playoff revenues, but you're rewarding mediocrity and that just doesn't sit well with me. What really gets me though is, let's say you are a club that is going to be playing domestic MLS games, your domestic trophy, whether that's US Open Cup or the Canadian Championship, Leagues Cup, Champions League, and then an expanded playoff format. You're talking upwards of 60 games a year, and these rosters are not built to handle 60 games a year. The ones in Europe with 
tens and hundreds of millions of dollars behind them are barely able to handle 50 to 60 games in a season, there's no way MLS can. And that, to me, is, is the one thing I look at here, in that not only are you diluting the playoff product and adding an unnecessary third game to what should be at most a best of two, but just make it single knockout at this stage, you are also going to exhaust the players because it's a very grueling summer schedule already. You got differing climates. And on top of that, if you're playing 50 to 60 games and you're not used to it in that condensed window, that's going to lead to more injuries. And and that does not bode well whatsoever. Yeah. It's a format where I get what they're going at. I think the big one really is just the home playoff revenue because under this format, 16 teams would be guaranteed a home playoff game, if I'm not mistaken. 18 as well, because you include the one in playoff, right, uh, play-in yeah. games. 18 out of 29 teams or whatever it is now getting a home playoff game. I think that pretty much sums up why. Because I looked last year, last year, the 14 teams made the playoffs. Six of the teams didn't host a game, if I'm not mistaken. or something like Six or eight, I'm struggling to figure out the math here. Basically, only teams that hosted a playoff game last year were LAFC, Philadelphia Union, Montreal, Austin, Galaxy, Dallas, you know, New York City hosted one and then Red Bulls hosted one. Like there weren't many teams that hosted a playoff game. And I think that was the, if anything, the bigger, because I think the Cincinnati owner kind of made what was pretty blunt about it too. They're like, yeah, we love it. Like we're going to be able to host a playoff game, hopefully. And I think that's the big one. What I hate about it is that it devalues the regular season. I think that's the big one for me, just because if over half of your league makes the playoffs at this point, plus you get a home playoff game, there's not even that incentive to push and win in the playoffs for a lot of teams. Because if you're getting in and getting a free home playoff game, like that's gravy. Like, yeah, of course you want to be a top team and get, say, like LAFC hosted three home playoff games last year. But yeah, if you're if you're gonna you know, tell me you can finish ninth and host host potentially two playoff games. If you finish ninth, you get your playing game, and then you you finish. Then you get your one play home playoff game that you're guaranteed with the second round or whatever the round you want to call it. Yeah. That for me, I think it devalues the heck out of the regular season, and that you don't want because I think we're seeing that in a league like the NBA. NBA is the one where they introduced the playing format. And I get why they want more playoffs. Playoffs are great. I love playoffs. They're entertaining. These one-game knockouts, it's fantastic. But the problem is if you do too much playoffs, it devalues your regular season. In the NBA, what, eight or ten teams make the playoffs now because they have their playing games as well. And what we've noticed is it's a crisis over there in terms of star players missing like all these games because in the, in the reality is you just have to finish top 10. So if you're a team that's top six and it's the end of the, you know, you're near the end of the year, you see load management, you see stars not playing games. That sucks for fans because you buy a ticket for a game. Okay. LA Lakers are coming to town. I want to see LeBron. Oh, LeBron's not playing. See, we could very well see the same thing in MLS where say we'll use a TFC because they've got, you know, Insignia Bernadeschi. Say someone wants to watch the Italians play, TFC comes to town, they're already comfortably in like fifth or something. And, you know, maybe they, they have had a busy, busy schedule. All of a sudden we see Insignia Bernadeschi rested. You lose value in your regular season. I think that's your main product. Yeah, your playoffs are great and all, but it's one where I think as a sporting league, you should always be focusing on the 
regular season you play your most games there and you know that's part of the reason why it's it's frustrating so i think it's going to be great i think that's one thing let's not kid ourselves the playoffs are going to be fantastic there always are like it's going to be cool to see these new formats and it's fun that they're trying new stuff but i think it's one where okay if you're looking to add in stuff like three-legged playoffs per se i'd say you go two-legged but sure it's one extra game it should be in a format where only like 12 of your teams are making it and then you're doing like three legged and just provide more value for the regular season because i think we're we're going to see some teams it's just going to create this bubble of mediocrity and why not if you're going to make the playoffs and have just as good of a chance of making it far like why would you you know of course you're going to want to push for the shield but say you're in a situation where you don't need to and you're not able to like why would you not right and that that's the part that's dangerous with these sorts of playoff formats Here's a noble concept to teams who want more home playoff revenues and whatnot. Build a competitive squad. And by doing that, you win more games. Ergo, you get more home playoff games. Ergo, you make more money. But the North American model means that you gotta you gotta go in through the back door, unfortunately. But where does this leave the MLS super draft? And I, I joke about that, but it's almost a bit of a legitimate question. That's a shot towards your your, your college brethren, Ben. How dare you insult college sports like that? U sports players aren't eligible for the MLS Super Draft, except UBC players find their way in every now and then, at least onto the registration list. But when you're looking at the Super Draft, how do you seed this? Do you go right back up the standings, or do you sort of like further reward that ninth place mediocrity? Do you have some sort of lottery that you start putting in or is the super draft just gone at this point well i think you i honestly think you do it how most leagues do it in that you know if you if you end up making the playoffs then you move what would that be i guess lower in the draft order so yeah i i I guess if you're like let's say you're the ninth seed and you make the playoffs and then you knock out the eighth seed well then the eighth seed moves above you in terms of the lottery quote-unquote or you know just further up in the draft order that that's how i think it probably would work um, but again, I do think you should, as Alex said there, reward the regular season somehow because it's already so diluted at this point. But also nobody's well, it's just, necessarily tanking in MLS. No. No, well, of course not because you have no reason to tank. But it's it's just frustrating because even the shields become so devalued because you don't play everyone in the league. So, like, you could just have mm-hmm. an easy conference or, say, easier matchups dominate, win the shield. And even that, like, yeah, it's just something where – I think MLS understandably is seeing the entertainment value in playoffs. Heck, they threw in a basically a, what is a World Cup in the middle of the season in League's Cup because they love that format so much. But it's just one of them where it feels like at the cost of, you know, the fundamentals aspects of the sport of the league system, they're go, they're leaning a little too far into the people love playoffs, people love knockout tournaments. Let's do them twice every year with the League's Cup in a playoffs. And I just think that's absurd. Like there's like cups are around. Like there's a US Open Cup. I mean, obviously it's not an MLS affiliate, but there's a lot of non I can't even say there's a lot of potential in that tournament because that tournament's been great for a hundred years. Like you got a Canadian championship, it's trending that way. You've got a Champions League, which is still around and just expanded as well. Like it's just one of them where there's just too much growth, growth, growth going on. And growth is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but it's like a lot of growth in the American sense where it's just about grandeur. It's about spectacle. And it's, I don't know, it's just taking away. Maybe, maybe I'm sounding like a complete boomer right now, but it's just one of them where MLS for all as eccentric and fun as the league can being, it it can be, it's leaning a little too much into like the wow factor of 
people people love the World Cup. There's a knockout tournament. Let's do one every year. Like again, that doesn't make a tournament like that special. It just makes it makes a tournament like League's Cup just seem like a tournament that's there. Like at least the Champions League, you qualify for. Like you look at the Whitecaps; they haven't been there in five years. It's going to mean something for them to be in that tournament this year. Whereas like a League's Cup, you're there every year. It's just going to be like one. Well, if we're good, we'll go try and win it, right? It's just I don't know. There's just a lot of dilution of important products, such as regular seasons, such as you know, cups, such as playing Mexican teams, which is no longer going to be a spectacle anymore because you got League's Cup. Like there's just a lot of removal of what's special. It's going to remove. I think personally, it's going to make the playoffs less special just because there's so much of it this year. Like it's going to lose a bit of that allure like what i loved about mls playoffs is that it was boom 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 one game one game it's done like you you one minute you're sitting down for the first round the next minute it was over like it was special it was quick it was fleeting and now it's going to be like a slog of games it feels like you see the counterpoint to that though is i know that there's a lot of casual fans who will get excited for say their team's playoff run and then by the time that they've gotten excited or read up on two or three of the players it's over and you're looking towards next season and the players that are contract. And so that's where I think the best of three series actually does offer a little bit of a unique excitement because you're not having sort of your either traditional soccer draw, which is confusing for casual North Americans to figure out. It's not complicated, but people seem to have an issue with it. I'm sure all of you listening have no issue with understanding two-legged draws, but then single knockout is over so quick that you can't really build up like a playoff momentum. Like you think of the NHL playoffs and I'm not suggesting you go to best 407 for four rounds in, in MLS. <laughs> That'd be completely ridiculous and off the wall. But you look at sort of like how the momentum builds in that and how how you can sort of, you can feel it reaching a bit of a breaking point or a, a peaking point. And that's what I think MLS is trying to do. And I don't necessarily see other than just exhaustion on the players and the, the roster should expand to accommodate that. But I don't see a negative in that in terms of growing the sport in North America because you can gain that sort of playoff momentum that you see in other sports. It's it's a good point. It's a good point in the, that regard. But it's also one where it's if you're MLS, like you, you, I'm mixed on just because I don't think it's again, as we've seen, it's not so much growing the game as it is an issue over here in the sense that I think the game is plenty grown. Like it's, it's, it's not a matter of interest in the sport. It's an interest in the league. And I don't know, it's just for, based on the reaction I see where a lot of traditional soccer fans, not to use that, you know, split it versus traditional versus non-traditional, et cetera. But these sorts of formats are turning off the traditional fan. And I just think it's one, if you're focusing on the casual fan, the casual fan's going to come no matter what. Usually they come at success. They come at fun environments. They come at, you know, good marketing. They come at good teams. They don't, those things don't really tie into, you know, good, uh, like wacky playoff formats. Heck you see it in Europe. I mean, there's a lot of casual fans that are fans of Real Madrid. They're fans of Liverpool. It's not because of wacky playoffs. It's not because of, you know, this or that. Like, they just have fallen in love with uh, in- environments such as, as that one. So I, I'm looking at that situation where you do also have to tap into that diehard market. And I just, you look at how this format's turned off a, a lot of those people. Yeah, I, I, that's where I'm torn because I think the casual fans are going to come no matter what. They're just going to come if they hear it's great. People are enjoying it, falling in love. And I think for for leagues like MLS, you want to continue to grow uh, that that the the culture. This you know diehard fans because I think diehard fans are what drive leagues. Casual fans come and go, but diehards are, are what really ultimately at the end of the day drives uh, your 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 league. And I think 
sometimes MLS seems split between both camps of wanting to attract diehards, but also trying to be fancy in that like new fad, that new fancy restaurant, so to speak, for people to to, to catch on to and be a trend. Uh, you know, whereas not sure if that's always the way the way to go, at least in sports, just because sports is so long term, sports is so continuous, sports is such a institutional aspect, if that makes sense. Toronto FC acquired midfielder Brendan Cervania from FC Dallas in exchange for Jesus Jimenez and definitely good for Jimenez to make his way out of Toronto after a bit of a tire fire that that signing was for TFC. The Vancouver Whitecaps officially signed goalkeeper Yohei Takaoka from Yokohama in the J-League and striker Sergio Cordova, who was on loan at Real Salt Lake last season. And I absolutely loved how the Whitecaps teased slash announced Cordova of sort of a video that faded into the West Cordova street sign in Vancouver. CF Montreal announced that Matko Mailevich underwent surgery, which opens up a spot in Montreal's attack for the season opener, potential for Sean Rea to fill in that spot. But when you look at the Cervania Jimenez trade, what are your initial thoughts on that? They had to give up striker depth to do it, obviously, but TFC needed midfield depth, I think, almost more than they needed a third striker in, in their team. And Cervania gives them another box-to-box presence that they so desperately lack. Uh, he was pretty decently active off the ball in Dallas, which might help protect Michael Bradley as he was often stretched last season, having to cover all that ground. Plus, if Osorio or K got hurt, which you feel is almost an inevitability given their injury histories, there's at least proper ready-made cover with MLS experience. And he's also on the younger side, so you have some resale value there if there's ever European interest. Um, very strange that he just was taken out of the 11 right before the summer at, at Dallas and then became a bit part player there. But clearly, Cervania has potential. He was capped once by the U.S. He was a mainstay in their youth national teams. He's a talented player. I just don't know if maybe he was the right enough fit in that team after a while. Whereas with Toronto, I feel like, especially now, he very well could be. Yeah, I think it's a, a good trade in the end for Toronto FC to get a 23-year-old midfielder. They need midfield depth. They need it, and they get a number eight Again, the number eight thing is a bit of a question just because, you know, that you look at their team and you wonder, OK, maybe they would, if anything, they need more depth at the six. And just Cervania has got some excellent attacking numbers in, in the midfield. He, you know, really projects as more of an eight. So you do wonder maybe on that regard. But I think to get a 23-year-old promising uh, midfielder um, is, is is a good move, especially for a disgruntled striker that didn't seem like he was going to start and, you know, give him a fresh start. It's, I think it's a good uh, trade, but uh, I think the, the million dollar question is, is there a world where you could have got a six like Cervania and kept a Jaden Nelson? It, like how much better is Cervania than Jaden Nelson? That is also something that you could consider just given that Nelson did project a lot in the number eight, but that's getting too much big picture. That's too much in isolation. I think looking at this trade, Cervania should be a good piece for TFC, and I like the move. And when you're looking at the Whitecap signings, of course, long rumored for Takaoka and Cordova, they finally make them official this week. The Whitecaps seemingly are ready for opening day now. They start against Real Salt Lake, of course, Cordova's former team. They're the only Canadian team starting their MLS season at home. So if you want to take a look at the Whitecaps, are they set for 2023 now? I would say they are, yeah. Um, they needed desperately to fill out the goalkeeping position, the striker position, and Cordova, the one thing I like about him is that stylistically, I think he'll fit in really nicely to how they play, which I, I know we've already touched on, but I'll reiterate it again. Very strong in the air, great hold-up striker, but 
knows how to get into quality positions. His expected goals per shot was 0.18 expected goals per shot, which is among, I believe it was the 86th percentile among all MLS forwards last season, which is ridiculously high, especially for a, for a striker who, when you look at his overall expected goals, his shot numbers were relatively above average. So it goes to show you that if you get Gressel firing, if you hopefully get Ryan Gold firing, maybe Schopf comes in there and, and does his thing, whatever the case, you're, you're going to get say right in and around the mid-teens. Like if you get 13 goals out of him, somewhere in and around there, that's a solid signing. Takayoka, what's interesting about him is in his seasons in the J League, he's alternated posting like league average numbers and then posting strong goals saved above expected numbers in alternating seasons. Last year, it was at about zero, which means this year, if history is any indication, he's going to post more goals saved above expected. And the Whitecaps saved 11 goals below expected last season, which was the worst in MLS. So we're talking at least an 11 goal swing of defensive improvement. So that's why I say the Whitecaps could be probably one of the surprise teams in the league this year, because they now have a very solid spine put together. Are they thin in some areas? Sure. But if everybody stays fit, which is always the key for this team, they can make a pretty decent amount of noise in the West. Well, for reference, the Whitecaps missed out on the playoffs by one game last year. Um, so 11 goal swing that for reference, that's usually the difference between teams moving like three, four, five spots in the standings. So it is one where if Takaoka makes good and especially Cordova makes good. One thing you noted, Peter, obviously the size, the hold up play. You almost, if I close my eyes for a second, you'd almost be excused if I thought you were talking about Lucas Cavallini. One <laughs> aspect that Cordova brings that Cavallini does is he's a big guy. He's 6'2", 200, I think was his deets he's listed. Like, boy, are you signing a linebacker, a, a left winger for the, the Canucks? No, like you're signing a striker, but he moves uh, quite well for big man. We've seen that time with RSL. He runs the channels a lot. And for how the Whitecaps play in transitional uh, style like they really want to get Vita and Vita and Gold running in the channels and, and their striker running in the channels. That's one huge area that Cordova is going to be asked um, to to do is to run th those channels, and I think that's another aspect. Uh, so I think it's one where yeah, you look on paper the Whitecaps lineup is very you know set. I think from goal to front, Cordova is really the big question mark because the one thing is he's the third choice striker they were looking at so you do wonder okay maybe why wasn't he higher up in the priorities why weren't they able to get their priority list but it's one that if he can come true and get them those goals and taco can come keep them out uh they should be in a good position for 2023 and when you look at cf montreal as well of course a bit of a reset year for them is sean rea set to start the opener without milievich well, I think it's down to either Rhea or Hamdi at this point to fill out that front three, but I think Rhea has the edge after some pretty impressive preseason performances for them. Plus, he can be that winger, number 10 tweener that can play off strikers if needed because it looks like that's what Montreal's going to do as they did last year, play with three forwards, one kind of in the hole but playing in that free-roaming position where maybe at times you combine with the wingbacks and what have you. And Rhea fills that role perfectly in that way. Saliba and Zuhir were listed as potential options, but they would probably be earmarked for the double pivot, if anything. And Schwanier, who could, I suppose, in theory, play there, it looks like he's been more slotted into the back five in preseason. So that might be his primary role to start with. But certainly, if you need to put him there in a pinch, he can. But Rhea, if you're looking at number one options to start from the very beginning, I would put him top of the list. 
Yeah, I mean, hopefully Rhea can get his look because it's a position he's familiar with, that sort of left half space. He's creative. You know, it's one where hopefully, and he's, from what it sounds like, looked good in preseason. So hopefully Rhea does. But uh, yeah, I mean, between Rhea, Saliba, Schwanier, that's a lot of young Canadians. So I, I suppose unless, you know, it's Ahmed Hamdi, who's a fine player, so Montreal fans won't care. But from a Canadian perspective, uh, you'll hope it's Rhea or, you know, or Saliba or Schwanier. We're all very good options but yeah curious to see what this Miljevic injury means because it's maybe one where if him and Ray are are, are battling it out to start the season whereas Ray maybe gets that bit of that early edge can he take it that's the key at this level that he's going to get that chance and you know with hopefully those two seasons of CPL under his belt really gave him what he needs to go out and win this battle because I think if he can get his feet going uh, quick Montreal fans are going to need that just because this is Georgie Mihailovic's shoes that are going to be replaced here. And considering Montreal, uh, you know, their their lack of DP situation has been on, on online. So if they can uh, sort that out. Good production, sorry, is the way for, for people to forget about that. And with the season starting this weekend, Canadian team predictions. And I was reading through some of the MLSsoccer.com predictions, and they seemed low for a lot of the Canadian teams. But you know what? It's so random every year. You just never know where certain teams are going to finish. Like, I think pretty much like every season, both conferences are a crapshoot. You know who the top two might be in each conference. Like you say, LAFC is pretty much locked into finishing the top two in the West. And then, like, take your pick of Austin, maybe Seattle rebounds this year. Um, But after that, just take your pick. Same with the East. Like you say, it's probably Philadelphia. Um you know, finishing in one of those top two positions, NYCFC maybe rounds it out. But after that, again, kind of a crapshoot. But in terms of actual picks, I think TFC comes sixth in the East. I think that when you look at their overall form with the Italians in there and with the 11 they have, like it's solid enough. It's a playoff 11. They have filled all the right holes, whether or it's going to be good enough to get into the upper echelon is another thing. Plus, if some of those players have to rotate, who are the backups? And that's really where it might get dicey. That's where they might drop points, maybe come back down to earth a little bit. So I still say they make the playoffs relatively comfortably, get sixth. Montreal, I have seventh because they're bringing back, I think it's seven starters from last year, considering all the departures and all the links that we saw. That's pretty damn impressive. And they've replaced all those departures very well. Um, the difference is, are they going to have the quality? Are they going to have the same execution with Hernan Losada in there as they did with Wilfred Nalsi, all these things. They might start the season slowly and then maybe pick up steam, but I'll say they come seventh. And then the Whitecaps, I mean, I was bullish about them a couple weeks ago. Might as well stick with it. I say they come fourth in the West based on the 11th they have. Um, And they're going to be my surprise package this year. I'll I'll just say it now, provided everybody does stay fit, which is always the caveat. I would have fairly similar predictions. In the West, I have the Whitecaps fifth, but it's really contingent on how well Takoka performs. Uh, in terms of what he's doing to to save goals above expected, just because the the Whitecaps did so terribly in that category last year, as we continue to harp on on the podcast. But if there's minuscule improvement, if they get league average goaltending, uh, goalkeeping, they can hockey too much. Uh, if they get league average goalkeeping, I could see them go up to fifth in the West. For TFC, I'm going to be a little bit nicer and say they're going to finish fourth. I think that they'll ride the Italians as much as they can. Uh, and... I'm betting they won't get hurt, 
but that's a slim bet for, Insigne for was already getting kind of hurt last year. That That's the only thing, and he's a year older now. But Bernadeschi, you would imagine, will stay fit, but it's Insigne sure. who's going to be the question mark. And then then Montreal, I, I do think, is sort of in that same realm, like a 7th or 8th, just kind of sneak into the playoffs. I blindly wrote down my list before the question was asked, so I'll just save you time. It's I had Whitecaps 4th, Toronto 6th, Montreal 7th, so you can just refer back to what Peter said. Shocker. <clears throat> Everyone fairly in the same realm, but from, from Ken at My Teams Wear Red, what's happening with Malcolm Johnson? He doesn't seem to be involved with NYCFC. Is he injured or just not in their plans? What I've heard of Malcolm Johnson, um, obviously there's some a strong Canadian interest in him before the draft um, from some of the Canadian MLS teams. And there actually is a chance he ends up there because from it's tough, like you mentioned with preseason, but from what I've seen and from what I've heard and from what I understood, uh, I'm not sure Malcolm Johnson ended up cracking any of the NYCFC teams. Like I think he may or uh, may not have been cut slash, I guess, left camp or whatever. So there is a possibility that he ends up north of the border because from what I've seen, it doesn't look like he'll end up actually with the MLS next pro uh, side. So, I mean, I imagine we'll hear more closer to the MLS next pro season, which starts a bit after the MLS season, since it's a bit uh, shorter for, for news on Malcolm Johnson. But from what, you know, the word of on the street of as of a few weeks ago, it sounds like uh, there's been some interest north of the border uh, for, for him to potentially land on the MLS next pro deal. AGR bomb. Boom. And from Matthew Ryerjuk at MPH Legend 10, for the players on the three Canadian MLS teams who are born or have another nationality, if they get their PR status in Canada, would they be able to represent Canada? Or do you have to hold a Canadian passport and be here for over five years? Correct. Asking about Gold and Camacho. And you do have to be a Canadian citizen yes. to play for the national team. Yeah, it's actually FIFA law that you need to be a passport holder of the country you're representing. So yeah, they would need to have a passport in order to play for Canada. It's it's possible one day though that they could yeah, be, be with the clubs long yeah. enough to to reach that point. I remember in the early days of the Whitecaps in MLS, there were talks about Gershon Kofi and Camilo hmm. sticking around That's long right. enough to play for for Canada. The Whitecaps website ran articles about how the two wanted to play for Canada. I vividly remember those discussions. Fondrely um, Lefebvre at Montreal also ended up getting his passport and got capped by Canada, but then fell off the face of the earth after that. So, But it does happen, as we've seen. Well, he, it is possible. He, he, it's funny you mentioned him. He's still playing in the PLSQ, if you're talking That's about. That's right. Yes. Uh, double, yeah. Doing double duty, being an analyst and playing in the PLSQ. But uh, in terms of, you know, the the, the players, it's one where, yeah, it's going to be an, a rare situation just because you need a combo of a player who's young enough, sticks around five years, just because I think most guys, like, come at 26 27 there's just reality that by the time the five years pass they're 32 33 they're not it's like a guy like camacho like could he maybe crack the national team squad he may as well go for someone a bit younger um so I, I i'm looking like even guys like veselinovic is a guy who if he wasn't already capped by serbia he'd be a perfect candidate in i think two years time because he's been around since uh 2020 so yeah i don't know for now there's not any names that that stick out any young players like maybe a Diber Caicedo in a couple of years where we're talking about, but for the most part on the Canadian MLS teams, there isn't anyone yet, but it is always a possibility. We see Julian Gressel recently made his U S debut, a former, you know, of course the German native. And then back in the day, there was Darlington Nagby. It is very well possible. It's just, we rarely see the right combination of a player sticking around right enough, being of a position of need 
you know, not getting traded like Gershon Kofi was very close to becoming Canadian. He got traded. Uh, that those sorts of things are always holdups. Well, there's not so far off for Ryan Gold to get Canadian citizenship. Only three more years or so, two and, and a half, three. Yeah. He would be what thirty at that point. Would yeah. you take Ryan Gold for mm-hmm. at at thirty two for the the next World Cup that he would be eligible for? I mean, probably. He's still yeah. balling. Of course, you look at it. And also for Matthew Pryor, Chuck, is there any other Canadian city or province that should be considered if MLS ever did want to add a fourth team in Canada? Would it make sense geographically or would it be unrealistic? I'm thinking about a prairie province as a possibility. I don't think so, to be honest. If there was going to be an MLS team, a fourth MLS team in Canada, you then kind of, I guess, population-wise look at what the fourth biggest metropolis is, which I think is Calgary, but... Having the CPL there is probably a bit of an obstacle. And then where do you put the team as well? That, that, that's another side. They have a um, falling apart CFL stadium that yeah, can't quite fit. You know, you don't necessarily want to be plunking a team in at the Edmonton Elk Stadium at Commonwealth because, I mean, one, we've seen soccer at Edmonton that doesn't quite work at this point. Um, and Commonwealth Stadium is nowhere convenient. And then you look at the other cities in Canada. You don't necessarily want to put one in Quebec City because you have the Montreal Impact in that province and they have a good support. So in the CPL, where there is expansion, uh, Valor signed Canadian goalkeeper Jordan Tissier to a U-Sports contract. Former Pacific forward Gianni Dos Santos has joined Atletico Ottawa. Ottawa has also acquired Sam Salter from Halifax and became the first player sold within the CPL for a transfer fee. Halifax signed Canadian defender Daniel Nimick which means all 10 provinces have representation in the CPL. Well, it's time for the territories is what all, all I would have to say. Which CPL team is having the best season? Which CPL team is having the best offseason so far? You know, I mentioned HFX a couple weeks ago. I, I still love what they're doing 100%. They got some really intriguing young players, but I think the roster that Valor has built has been like really low-key solid. Yes, they lose Sirois, but... You know, they still have ready-made replacements there. Um, they lose Rocco Romeo, which was a pretty big blow, but they've actually signed some really capable replacements in all those positions, and they've been on the precipice of the top four. I wouldn't be surprised if they make a, a fairly strong push this year for that top four. It's going to be super competitive, though, one of the most competitive we've seen in quite some time. So I'm very much looking forward to it, but Valor would be one team that I don't think gets enough love for the business they've done in the offseason that I think deserves some love. Well, I think the one team that I'm, again, if I'm looking at my early predictions, I think Pacific, like just one where it feels like with Vancouver FC coming in, Vancouver FC coming in, it's kind of almost stolen a bit of the thunder in BC. Everyone's keeping an eye on, you know, the Eagles, the new team. What are they up to? What's going on? Uh, You know, Callum Irving left and everyone's like, oh, like Vancouver FC going to poach a bunch of players from Pacific, but all of a sudden, like, I think the, the reason I say this is this morning, I woke up and checked my Instagram and there was the, you know, per training picks from yesterday. Cause they started their preseason and you slide through the Pacific training picks. You're like, Oh yeah, they've got on Cedric Toussaint, who's someone I always felt was very undervalued. He's in there. You see Manny Aparicio, you see Cunley data Luke, you see, Oh yeah, they signed a Don Jareed, one of the more prolific, you know, strikers in the USL over the last couple of years. You got Pierre Lamoth, who I forgot is a very sneaky signing. Like he is someone who I love to watch at Halifax. Very good. You know, another good midfielder, Josh Hurd still kicking around. 
you know, all of a sudden you're looking like, okay, that's like the makings of a good team. You throw Sean Young into that midfield. All of a sudden, Jamar Dixon is very well replaced. And then some Marco Bustos, you know, there's some options to replace him. Of course, you talk on Garo. The back line is still the same. That's one where you look at amongst the teams that sort of the fact they were able to keep their core for the most part and supplement it for me is why it's the best. Cause I think Ottawa is a team that sneakily is starting to, to pick things up like DeSant Gianni DeSanto is a good signing, etc. but there's still some questions. Okay. Who replaces blue tabla? Who, who's going to score the goals for them? You look at forge, even for example, where's, they haven't changed much, but unlike Pacific, they haven't added an Angaro type or a, you know, a, a Lamoth type into that squad. You look at Cavalry as well. They made some sneaky signings. I just think Pacific's the best combo of guys returning and new faces brought in. We're like, wow, that's already a team that is a couple months out from the season. And you can already see a very, very good 11 being put into place. And from Archer Lachinsky, ever since the rumor that Atipa Hutchinson's time at Besiktas is over, CanPL fans have been clamoring for him to come home. If you could bring one Canadian from abroad to the CPL for one season, whether it was a veteran or a teenager who needed minutes, who would it be? And also a little bit of news to that. Apparently, Atletico Ottawa is interested based on a tweet from their CEO, Fernando Lopez. He put out, if this gets 150 likes, we'll reach out to Atiba Hutchinson. Well, it got 150 likes easily in just a few minutes. And uh, apparently they've reached out to Atiba Hutchinson. I don't know whether that's official or not, but if he sticks to his word on Twitter. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he would be my choice anyway to to be the, you know, active Canadian player to come in and and join the CPL because one of the reasons why MLS kind of got off the ground as early as it did is because all those American players with pedigree joined MLS, helped MLS 1.0 become what it is today. And Atiba Hutchinson can definitely do that. Even if he comes for four to five months just to kind of stay fit into the summer to play the Gold Cup, play the Nations League of Canada, gets to the semifinals and final and goes from there. Um, he's 40 years old, yes, but as we can see, he can still do a job in a pretty solid league for a big club in Europe. So if he comes to the CPL, I think he'd be pretty impactful even at the age of 40. I'm going to throw out a, a fun name, at least in terms of veterans. And hey, maybe Peter, I'll throw it also back to you. We should probably, we should try to think of a teenager because it is a good question to imagine yes. like, because I'm thinking like which teenager could benefit from a move, but the veteran I'd go is Milan Borjan. I just think if you're talking marketability, like having a sweatpants wearing Milan Borjan in net for Forge, <laughs> you know, it's like if the games get like, tell me that wouldn't get interest in the, you know, in the league. And I think it would be hilarious to bring that personality just because you especially listen to the Canadian men's national team, how much they all rave and rant about just the leadership, what Borjan was able to provide in terms of that. I think it'd be good for youngsters to see that firsthand. Maybe you'll, you'll just hope they don't pick up on some of his other, you know, habits, namely the dart smoking, you know, just in case for the future, it's not for, for everyone. It's not everyone has the the lungs to keep up with that sort of lifestyle. But from what everyone teammate that has ever played with him has said, they'll always rant and rave about how good of an influence he was in, in the locker room. I think a guy like Boyan would be fun in a, in, a, in a young league for the players and then also just the entertainment that Milan Boyan brings wherever he goes. I think an intriguing name could probably be Daniil Henry. It feels like he was close to coming to the CPL when he was clubless ahead of the World Cup. Um, I think he could be intriguing, not because he's the the marketability of Borjan or Hutchinson, but just he adds a lot of those leadership qualities that can sort of help bring up young Canadians coming up at a CPL club. Uh, and he's probably at that point of his career, and I think it's a fairly realistic thing that he could probably take a step to the CPL. 
You know, another name, too, that I was thinking of, and this would still be a few years away because he's still playing at a very high level, Junior Hoylett eventually could be one name as well. He that feels bound to TFC to me. Yeah, but maybe if he's like, say, 35, 36, he could come to the CPL for a year or two, ride out his career closer to home, and then maybe call it a career. But yeah, obviously the age he's at right now, he's still a championship caliber player and probably will be for a little while longer. And lastly, from Matthew Chuck, are there any news updates on CPL expansion for Montreal? Any updates on Saskatoon and the legal issues there? Well, I would assume in terms of Montreal, like that's Quebec in general, because I know Laval's been involved, Quebec City's been involved. Um, there have been certain clubs trademarked. Saskatoon, that is the big one, because there was supposed to be a, a, uh, like a council meeting in Saskatoon sometime in quarter two, but now it's it's run into some legal issues at Prairie Land Park, and, and it's just becoming a whole disaster at this point, which... I mean, I hate to be a cynic, and I know hindsight being what it is, you always get the benefit of it, but when Saskatoon was announced and the way it was announced, you always had reservations because it was contingent on them getting a stadium and one that you knew there was going to be some political red tape to pass through. So we're now seeing that maybe our greatest fear is now starting to come through. That's not to say it's done yet, but... You know, we, we still got a few months until that city council meeting, but it's not looking good. And that will be it for episode 110 of the Northern Football Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, as well as follow us on all social platforms. Another packed episode of Canadian Soccer. Never a quiet week in Canadian Soccer. For Peter Galindo, Alex Gongiruzic, I've been Ben Steiner. Thanks so much for listening to episode 110 of the Northern Football Podcast.